0: Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode seventy of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the nineties comic book boom through the pages of Wizard magazine, wondering what would have happened if Ganthet the Guardian had given the Green Lantern ring to Kyle Reese from The Terminator instead of Kyle Rayner. I'm Adam.
1: He would have probably died either
0: way. And (laughs) realizing that Mister Freeze
1: goes to Gotham would have been a much more appropriate title for Batman and Robin,
0: based on Arnold's paycheck for the film, um, Michael. <laughs> And for this 70th issue of Wizard, we had to invite a very special guest, a man who walked the hallowed halls of the Wizard offices for many years and may have even seen a Seamus or two in his time. He shares his name with a city crammed full of theme parks, and we're sure his participation will make this episode a thrill ride of sorts. A self super superfan of the fighting American, the most original patriotic hero of comic books, ladies and, ah, who am I kidding, gentlemen, it's Greg Orlando. <laughs> Hello out there. <laughs> we are glad to have you back here uh, because it was such a fun time talking to you on the Wizard Files and we just thought, hey, let's get his take on the actual comic book news of the day and what was going on as the magazine was being put together. Was You were on the Wizard Files a
1: while ago and then we did that like 30th anniversary special and you were there as well. That's That's been like
2: a good year, right? We've yeah. talked so you. <laughs> Time flies. <laughs> I know, right? That's crazy.
0: But Greg, for those who don't understand the world of magazine publication from the 90s, can you briefly explain what your job as a copy editor entailed over at Wizard Magazine?
2: Yeah, copy editors put the periods in the right place. You know, we, we make the writers look better than they should be. You know, we fix what's wrong. Sometimes we add stuff that's wrong, but... Uh, <laughs> did you follow apa format or
1: mla format when you were writing
2: uh we used the ap format and uh, the AP style book oh i have one of those i know it well <laughs>
0: well greg also Weird was a teacher him. at one time michael so michael works at a college and you had your time in the classroom greg oh, so. dear god yes <laughs> we gotta ask you though greg was jim mclaughlin functionally illiterate did you make everything he ever wrote just look superb
2: <laughs> oh no jim is a uh, Brilliant writer. He's a very smart guy. A very good editor, too. He became editor of Top Cow for a while. So yeah, I
0: would, I would put my faith in Jim McLaughlin. I still do to this day. (laughs) Don't we all? No. One thing I want to start out with here, you know, we don't usually read the from the top editorial letter uh, because as we've discovered over the years, talking to all the wizard staffers, it was written by everyone but Garib Sheamus. Greg, you wrote it a few times probably. Yes,
2: we all had a a swing at it. But really, um, you know, I like to think it was, you know, so garbled and incoherent that it only could have come from Garib. So uh, I like to preserve the mystique, the belief that,
0: the, the lore of it. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, this particular letter we had to read because it has a big announcement. Okay, so let's get into it here. It says, Con Artists. That is the name of this letter. It has the title of Con Artists. Read into that however you like. It's official. Uh-huh. We bought the Chicago Comic Con. This is a way for us to create more excitement for fans in the comic book industry. It's also a way for us to do more to help promote publishers. One of the things I really wanted out of a big show was to create an event that represents Wizard and its diversity. Which means, in addition to comic book companies, we want to bring in toy companies, collectible card game companies, video game companies, and so forth. We have the ability to bring in many of your favorite creators. We want you to to be there to see how much fun you can have in a hobby you love. So, this is a big moment. Okay. This is five years into Wizard's publication history. They are doing well enough to purchase the Chicago Comic Con. Okay. They are now going to run this event. This time around, it was actually still called uh, the Chicago Comic Con, but it was presented by Wizard. Okay. <laughs> Before we get into a few of the details about this first convention that was coming around in 97, do you remember your reaction when you first heard the? news that wizard now owned a convention and was getting into that business it didn't really register with me
2: i mean i guess i hope a few more dollars would fall into my pocket magically but they never did but yeah it was uh it was good because uh wizard got to run conventions we got to go out to uh by the way it wasn't in chicago was in a suburb of chicago it was in rosemont and that partially explains why wizard uh was able to you know to take it over because it was a smaller you know suburban thing and they just said oh it's in chicago but really you know rosemont <laughs> it was Illinois. The, the outskirts yes.
0: yeah <laughs> Well, here's the thing. So, to promote the event, this issue actually features a splash page style, to two page ad. Wizard prevents Chicago Comic Con 1997, and it announces guest appearances by who they named the guest of honor, Frank Miller, he who would rip a <laughs> Wizard magazine in half. But guest of honor, right there: Jim Lee, Joe Casada, Jimmy Palmiotti, Alex Ross, James Robinson, Peter David, Michael Turner, Kurt Busiek, Mark Wade, Rob Liefeld, and many more. But of course. Also in attendance, they make sure the biggest cheese of all, Garib Sheamus. He is a special guest of his own convention.
2: (laughs) He's everybody's favorite. They all came to see him, and the rest were like the professor
1: that wrote his own book and said, "Here, read this in my class."
0: But it's interesting, there's even a contest in this issue, very fitting, that a reader could win an all expenses paid trip to the convention in Rosemont, Illinois. How about that? But, Greg, you said a few more dollars you hoped would swing your way. Did you ever have to copy edit a convention program? Did you get to go to this first event? Like, what do you remember about this experience? Yeah, we
2: actually went. We, you know, we wizard editors were given very special jobs. For example, my job was to sit at the ticket booth and take people. People's money. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I told, I told the the people I work with, it's like, you really don't want me in, in charge of taking people's money. I apologize. You know, uh, under the best circumstances, I shouldn't be interacting with the public. I shouldn't be, t-
0: I shouldn't be taking money from anybody. Well, now, Greg, is that because you had sticky fingers or you're not much of a math guy? Well, I mean, all of it, you know, I
2: mean, <laughs> I couldn't say if like a few dollars fell into my pocket it was bad news all around
0: it all looks the same you can't tell the difference this guy's money and my money
2: a one or a hundred who knows Absolutely can't really you don't want me in charge of anybody's you know taking tickets and you know selling things and credit card receipts and all that it's just bad business
0: Yeah, but I just wonder, like, this first convention, because obviously Wizard had been, like, participating and setting up booths at various conventions over the years, but was there anything that you noticed, like, that were there lots of Wizard banners, was there extra promotion for the magazine involved, or was it still pretty much just a standard affair?
2: Uh, It was a good-sized convention, I remember, and a lot of people attended. It was a fun show. I remember I got to meet Stan Lee for the first time, and that was awesome. Wow. I I was in the show office. And I was just, I was running some stupid errand and there was Stan Lee and it, you know, I'm, I'm never starstruck, but this time I was like, I was paralyzed because it was Stan Lee and he started talking with me. And, you know, I I wish I could remember what we said to each other beyond the fact that i said like that (laughs) for maybe 10 minutes or so.
0: Well, I love that you said the first time. How many times did you meet Stanley in your lifetime?
2: I think I met him also at the San Diego Con later in my Wizard career. Wow. Okay. And again, what a very nice man. Great to talk with. Very personable.
0: Just love to be around people. You know, everything they say about him is it's true that was great to hear yeah you you love that most people you talk to are gonna tell that story so michael still a little he's like ah i didn't wait i could have waited i didn't wait he was in a line that was much too long
1: it was like five or six hours long and it would cost a hundred dollars and i was like i love him but i Mm -hmm. set new york Mm -hmm. comic-con and the cost of being at new york comic-con and basically burn an entire day just sitting in a line for 2.2 seconds was like wasn't worth it for me
0: yeah but here's the thing michael maybe after the fact you could have just written him a letter and he would have sent you a no prize back speaking of letters i think it's time that we open up Willie lumpkins mailbag never know when that transition's coming you gotta watch out king of the transition baby So our first letter here is from a gentleman named Danny Jorgensen of Eli, Nevada, who dares to question the fandom of professional comics creators. Are they just in it for the money, you might wonder. So here's what he says. Dear Wizard, I was wondering if comic artists actually collect comics. If they do, do they collect only the ones that they draw? Or do they collect comics in general? And so I'm wondering, first off, like, How many people collect their own comics? I feel like most people in the business that have a career are just kind of like, ah, every month, I'm not going to collect all these. But here is what our one and only Jim McLaughlin tells us. Let's ask a few. Jim Ballant, artist on DC Comics Catwoman and Chaos Comics Purgatory, quote, I collect, I tend to follow artists more than I follow titles. I'll read anything by Frank Miller, Bill Sienkiewicz, Frank Thorne, or Adam Hughes. I've always collected comics because I love them, but I also collect them because I think it's important to be aware of what other artists are doing. After all. I've got to stay in competition with them now. Brett Anderson, artist on homage comics Astro City, says, "Quote: Now I don't collect comics anymore. I still have kind of an informal collection of old stuff I like. I've got a run of Gru that I love. I got some old Lee Kirby Fantastic Fours, but I really don't keep up with anything anymore. And Chuck, never been able to say his name once he cue it." <laughs> Who's painting covers for some acclaimed comics, classics, illustrated comics says, quote, I'm a comic accumulator, not really a collector per se. I feel like that's you, Michael. You're a comic accumulator these days. (laughs) Yeah, too many. (laughs) I just let them build up in a big box, but I always pay special attention to the manga stuff, especially Appleseed. The comics that I do, I always give away to friends. Yeah, so there it is. And finally, Dan Jurgens, DC's Teen Titans writer-artist at this time. Sure, I collect comics. Preacher is a strangely compelling read these days. Some comics I collect just for the art, like anything about Michael Golden, and some I read for curiosity, like the Heroes Reward stuff. Basically, I'm still a fan. I really love comics, and I think there are more good books out today than there have been in many years. Hey, high praise for his cohorts, Dan Jurgens. I do love that Heroes rewarded was a curiosity, though. <laughs> He's just like, mm. I'm not saying this is good. I'm not saying I'm a fan of these guys, but check it out. All right, Michael, what's the next one here?
1: The next one is Brom, a guy named Ed Colette from Canada, who inquires about an early work of a comics legend he had recently uncovered, and it says. Dear Jim, my wife and I have just put our house up for sale. So we've been cleaning useless knickknacks, spare parts, and other eclectic garbage from our house. I pulled out a stack of old comic books, and one stood out from the rest. The publication was entitled Samurai Santa, and it was published by Salson Comics. Have you heard of Salson Comics? Sure haven't. Neither (laughs) have I. Feeling compelled to read... The stupid thing one last time before throwing it in the recycling bin two points stood out in my mind one it wasn't as bad as i thought it was gonna be two jim lee pencils it was this done by the jim lee of wildstorm productions and fantastic four fame ed Collette? British Columbia, Canada.
0: Fantastic Four claim really he's more At like this a... <laughs> time. That's his thing. Everybody's like, Jim Lee drew the Fantastic Four. And I believe that that was a little gentleman named Jack Kirby, but okay. Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the response is a rather embarrassed Jim Lee, Wildstorm Productions and Fantastic Four fame admits, I did it, but I didn't really pencil it. I did finishes and inks over someone else's layouts. I think they laid it out on typing paper, which was about half the size of an original comic page should be drawn at. It doesn't look the best. The only panel I thought turned out any good was the last one. I did it just before I started working at Marvel, and it must have come out in early 1986 or so. I really didn't know what I was doing at the time, but I know I was happy to have the work.
0: That is wild. Okay, so now you know some of Ghibli's earliest work. It's funny, too. Rob Liefeld's first work, Boris the Bear, was this indie comic he worked on, uh, you know, and Todd McFarlane did backups in this epic comic called Coyote. These stories called Scorpio Rose, you know? So it's just funny to see, like, where the these, like, top artists of their era started out in these bizarre indie backups or just, like, a couple pages here and there, you know?
1: It's almost like, you know, when you find out, like, you know, where George Clooney first appeared, like in the Facts of Life and, you know, things like that. And you're like, that guy?
0: really. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Greg, take us into our last letter here.
2: Okay. Jim, who is better looking in your opinion? Fairchild, Rainmaker, or Freefall? By Josh Schaefer of Morris Plains, New Jersey. And if you want, he has uh, listed his AOL email. Can you imagine the spam it's... this guy must have gotten? people? Zorak <laughs> at AOL.com. I hope um, it's still a thing. And <laughs> I
1: want it to be. Jim's
2: response, uh, none of the above, since all of the three are fictional characters, please get a better grip on reality and try again. A classic, <laughs> a classic Jim response, a wonderful Jim response. And that brings me to a special surprise I have for you guys. Oh, goodness. This is a Fairchild figure. Yes. Whoa. This is the finished Fairchild figure. Uh, And I show this to you for a very specific reason. This is the Fairchild prototype. Wow. And I show show this to you for another very specific reason. Uh One, two, three. Ah! <laughs> this is a prototype. Uh apparently there was a prototype that had womanly bits on it. Oh um, this one, has this a one just has the 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 rather unique fair child paint job, which is um <laughs> you know kind of disturbing considering this we gave this out to to
0: children. That's amazing. That is
2: absolutely frightening. <laughs>
0: That is so cool. Michael actually got me the Fairchild figure for my birthday one year, and then I have the the wizard one too. The mail yeah. away in that one there. That's so cool. And if you notice, she's this one has the purple on it. But anyway,
2: yeah. So yeah, th- there's your there's your frightening surprise for the day. <laughs> I dig uh, it. Pr- I- we saw that we're like that's not going to be. <laughs> this is not going to
0: fly. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's not going to work. for the Back kids. to the
0: drawing board, fellas. Well, I'm sure there is more news to come that may shock us. So why don't you take us into it, Michael, with... (laughs) Yeah, we missed it last episode. All right. Oh, my goodness gracious. Okay,
1: so the end of Heroes Reborn Experiment at Marvel is our top story of this issue. A few hints on how the Heroes Return storyline will play out are teased. Says writer Peter David, we're going to tell a story that is not... Onslaught two. All I can say is watch out for Franklin Richards as to whether the previous 12 months will seem like more than just a dream to the returning Marvel heroes, David replies. The heroes will have memories of the Heroes Reborn universe. Much more interesting, though, is the Heroes Reshuffled sidebar, which reports Marvel Comics has announced that Lifel's involvement in the two Heroes Reborn books has been terminated. Terminated.
0: (laughs) Terminated.
1: Marvel cited low sales as the reason for life termination. The books will now be published through Jim Lee's Wildstorm with Walt Simonson and Michael Ryan completing the last four issues of Avengers, while James Robinson and Joe Bennett will close out the Captain America storyline. I feel like Heroes Reborn was going on forever. Like, it just felt like we've been talking about this for months. Stay tuned for more insight into the split between Marvel and Liefeld later in this issue. So, Greg, what was your take on the Heroes Reborn thing in general?
2: I like the idea of this sort of event where Jim Lee and and Rob Liefeld were taking over these classic Marvel characters. I think it, it kind of interrupted the flow of the, you know, the regular books. So there was that to its detriment. But I liked the idea. In practice, the books weren't very good. Jim Lee's art is always solid, but, you know, there wasn't much to, to get behind with the Fantastic Four or the Avengers or Captain America. And I thought the, uh, the art for Iron Man was abysmal. Uh, I wasn't a fan of that style at all. So, yeah,
0: premise quickly died on me yeah it's one of those things where you know you got to give rob some credit for doing something different with cap where jim lee basically just retelling the first 60 issues you know of fantastic four so it wasn't that exciting just a few little tweaks you know whereas you know it was kind of a ground zero thing for for rob's take so that was pretty good now uh the buzz box here though has a lot of juicy rumors that they're dropping in that piqued my interest this issue first step there is a dc marvel all access miniseries, which is a sequel to the marvel versus dc event that is in the works i loved it bought them all still have them good stuff but on the other side sadly they announced the end of an era as gen 13 number 25 is revealed to be the last issue featuring art by j scott campbell at least for the interiors he's moving on to a yet unnamed creator owned project but can you say danger girl rumored to be a new event from dc comics is something called tangent which wizard believes may be a heroes reborn style relaunch top talent like kurt Busiek, dan jurgens james robinson carl kiesel and others are said to be involved and more on this is it develops because i know nothing about this tangent universe event imprint whatever it is and i was reading through uh, a dc comic from this era recently and i saw an ad and i was like what is that and then it came up in this issue so very very curious to find out how that's going to take shape but Apparently, speaking of these offshoot uh, imprints, DC's sci fi themed Helix imprint, which I didn't know it was still around at this point, uh, is going to be publishing a new book called Transmetropolitan by Warren Ellis, which becomes a huge hit. Also, another project that is 95% computer generated by Dave Gibbons, something called The Dome. Based on the art they're sharing here, it looks very much you know, like, I don't know, a Logan's Run type deal or something. Also mentioned briefly is an upcoming Batman Spider-Man one-shot by JMD DeMatteis and Graham Nolan. It's weird because the crossover from two years prior i had the heroes battling the joker and carnage now they're going to be teaming up to take on the kingpin and Razal Ghoul. but i just think it's so weird because usually like when dc and marvel would do this it was like okay this month here comes the team up from marvel and then the next month dc does theirs but two years in between there's got to be a story there somewhere yeah so yeah uh do you guys have any recollection of any of these projects have you heard about them uh
1: the batman spider-man one sounds somewhat familiar but i don't even know if it even even got off the ground, or did it? Like,
0: I don't know. Cause I have the first one, which has like them on the cover. There's like a bat signal in the background, and it's right. kind of like an embossed cover. It's pretty cool. I still have that's that before one. this time. Yeah, that's the
2: Mark Bagley one,
0: right? Yeah, exactly. And but yeah, that was, no, that I, was 95. Uh, that was pretty good. I don't r- recall reading the second one ever. I don't know uh-huh. if it came out. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye out for that. You geeks, you know what's going on. You know, if it's if it ever hits shelves, <laughs> stump the wizard eye. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Greg, take us into this next little bit of business. Oh, by oh. the way, there's a
2: typo in the Meet the New X-Men story. Got <laughs> it. The, the guy's name is Maggot with two T's. That's what makes him unique. Ah, I, remember, I, I remember interviewing Scott Lovedell and he's like, this is Maggot with two T's. <laughs> with all the recent character revamps like Marvel's Heroes Reborn and a rumored line of DC Comics revamps in the works, see BuzzBox, We thought we'd ask readers through our Wizard World Forum on America Online what big gun character they'd like to most see revamped from scratch. And the big winner is Wolverine with 40%. Yeah,
0: it's interesting. The the thing I saw there is there
2: were write-in ballots. Yeah, this month's poll generated an unusual amount of write-in ballots with write ins ranging from Magneto to Green Lantern. The biggest write in was The X Men, which garnered 9% of the total vote. I think that Marvel keeps moving farther and farther away from what The X Men used to be, said one respondent. They're so dark and grim now. With so many quick and meaningless plot lines going on, and with so many char- acting
0: out of character, I can't follow the books anymore. Nor do I think I want to. Just interesting, like people are still mad about Kyle Rader. They're like, get rid <laughs> Bring Hal back.
2: <laughs> um, by the way, if you notice, the byline is Sorrel Book. Yes. Um, the actor who uh starred in uh the Dukes, Dukes of Hazzard. Yes,
0: yes, that was Boss Hogg. That <laughs> Boss cracked Hog. me up. <laughs> Oh, so many jokes you guys were sticking around in the magazine. But I'm just curious for you guys on that topic, can you guys think of a character who wasn't listed that would have been around in 97 that you think would have benefited from a complete reimagining? Like whether a classic character that was stale or one that had just come out, but kind of was like, you know what? It didn't work the first time. Maybe the second time around, you'd have a better angle on it.
2: Yeah, I was always a big fan of Doctor Strange, but I think they never did enough with him. And it could have been such a great horror themed comic he could have been such a a wonderful you know like supernatural sort of investigator it just seemed like a missed opportunity i would have liked to have seen uh, dr strange okay
1: i think would be kind of cool this is gonna be really like an offshoot weird one but like like the question i thought the question would have been ripe for that time of like the 90s and like all the conspiracies yeah stuff like going on in the government I could see him kind of like investigating conspiracies and
0: like white water and all that kind of stuff wow that that would be good I was like when you said that though I was thinking what if Edward Nigma? became the question wouldn't that be so perfect like he just that's his heroic persona i know the riddler kind of had an anti-hero thing for a while but i think him taking over would be funny Uh, in that vein my thought was what if there was a revamp for man thing because man thing was like popping up in different marvel books at this time just as kind of a joke but what if he was like somehow associated with ben grimm so his revamp was you know ben grimm was always like changing back to ben grimm and then changing back to the thing other people would get the rocky exterior or whatever so what if man thing got the orange rocks instead of his swamp thing and ben grim became swampy would that be fun that'd be a uh, classic would, body swap that would yeah. be cool
2: i would love it if like <laughs> the
0: thing
1: going. would like sneeze and when he sneezes somebody else gets the rock on him <laughs> <Achoo>. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
0: all right michael maybe uh, on that side of contagious diseases why don't you take us into this next story here oh my goodness perez kills
1: comics fans announces the first creator-owned comic from the legendary George Perez titled Crimson Plague being published through Event Comics. The premise involves a genetically engineered woman named Dina Simmons, who was born with a plague and travels to Earth looking for a cure. Says Perez, what makes the Crimson Plague as diplomatically as possible is that At the time of the month, the plague becomes airborne and devastates the entire planet's population.
0: Michael, I'm going to give you a reading suggestion here, and I'm just going to put it out there. But it says, that time of the month, (laughs) damage control! Damage control! Damage control! Damage control! Oh, uh uh-oh.
1: I don't even know (laughs) if... There. I, I read through that. And I'm like, how do I reword this? This is where 30 years later doesn't, doesn't age well.
0: Not at oh. all.
1: No. Oh, George Perez. We miss you. Perez is inviting his fans to be written and drawn into the book to be killed during the course of the story. Hence the title of the news item. Perez claims to have been working on crimson plague for two years and maybe he should have added a few more months to that
0: development stage for page one rewrites yikes oh this is infamous i have heard about this book but just i don't know that that premise it, it didn't why would land you do well that, in the George? 90s yeah i'm just like don't do it don't do it
1: <laughs> greg just so you know adam loves to give me these kind of stories <laughs> he's just like because he loves to see me blush and get awkward I'm like oh boy how am I going to get canceled today? How am I getting canceled?
2: Well, I'm already posting on Twitter my uh, my offense, my <laughs> great offense at you reading that story. <laughs> That's right. The Crimson Plague indeed. Dear, <laughs> dear Twitter, cancel yeah. this
0: guy. Guys, I think we got to quickly move out of that topic and get into the meat of the issue. Oh, we are going to check out our table of contents. So Wizard 70 features a June 1997 cover date and had a bit of false advertising associated with its covers in the month leading up to the issue hitting newsstands. So in a house ad from issue 69, there is a Daryl Banks, Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern cover being promised. That was delivered. It's a very cool looking cover. It's fantastic. Kyle was very popular at the time. However, the other cover design that was promoted was a She-Hulk and Hulk team-up cover by Adam Kubert. Now, unfortunately, only one of the Emerald Skin cousins appears in the final design as an extreme close-up. Whoa! of uh, the Hulk's face. Sadly, this is the fourth time that Jennifer Walters had cover art created for Wizard and didn't make the cut. It took so long. And by the time she did make the cover, I mean, it was the, the heavy cheesecake era of Wizard. So <laughs> it was unfortunate we didn't get a classic She-Hulk look at that time. But the issue came packed with a Witchblade Chromium card in order form for an exclusive Witchblade comic, an Ash trading card, as well as a Spider-Man poster promoting marvel's flashback month which we'll be talking about shortly of course that was back to the brian douglas Ahern calendar but inside was a mail-away offer for an ash half comic so the partnership between wizard and event comic joe and jimmy just continued this is uh definitely an an apex for that there was uh, some goings on behind the scenes that we'll be covering shortly enough but Let's get to our first cover story here. Better Off Dead is a brief overview of the controversy created when Hal Jordan went crazy and Kyle Rader became the only Green Lantern in the universe. Of the fan reaction, Green Lantern editor Kevin Dooley explains, quote, I was online recently and this kid said to me, I hope what happened to Hal will happen to you. And I said, oh, you mean gain more popularity and then sacrifice my life to save the universe? And he said, no, I just wish you would die. (laughs) Wizard elaborates. Quote, according to Dooley, the book sales skyrocketed 300% since Rod Mars took over the writing chores, which is exactly what DC was looking for. But says Dooley of how the dust has settled as they approach issue number 100, quote, a lot of fans who dropped Green Lantern said they came back and kept reading because they liked the stories. But of course, the art by Daryl Banks had a big part to play as well, as he designed Kyle's suit and the parallax look for Hal, and actually the name too, he, he says he came up with the name, but in a sidebar titled jumpstart, with Wizard asks Banks and Mars how they would revamp some other DC heroes. So it says here, seeing as how Rod Mars and Gerald Banks overcome some pretty stacked odds by successfully shaking up the entire world of Green Lantern, Wizard thought it'd be neat to see how they'd revamp five other cool DC characters in need of a facelift. So the first one here is Hawkman. Why don't you read that one for us, Greg? Mars would return the character's original concept as an archaeologist
2: imbued with the power of the hawk gods. He'd almost risk losing himself in the power of this ancient force. Banks would also leave uh, Hawkman's costume alone, reintroduce Hawkman's sidekick bird from the 1960s, and lobby for Hawkwoman's return. I think every hero should have a bird sidekick.
0: I think that's a cool idea. Yeah, but it's, it's so strange to me. It's just like, well, let's just make him the Golden Age version again. <laughs> we got nothing. Next one here is Red Tornado, though. And Mars says, I like the idea of a cyborg or a machine trying to be a hero. Not trying to be a man, but beyond that, trying to be a hero. That's a timeless concept. Banks would go to the movie Twister for visual inspiration. Part of his body could be emanating winds, he says, like this with more of an elemental feel. That has nothing to do with Twister. <laughs> I don't see that. At least it's on Twister, the game, and you're not getting the polka dot man involved in this. So well, the next one is Firestorm, and it says,
1: "I bring back the duality of two minds trying to control this heroic being." Mars says, "I always like the concept of the stodgy scientist and the young kid trying to do something together." Banks would keep the original costume, but draw the character as an elemental fire being.
0: Again, we're going to do what's already been done. We like this version. What? Just (laughs) do it over. You're not answering the question, guys. (laughs) Greg, how about Blue Devil here?
2: I'd basically make him into a guy who takes care of occult and supernatural instances, Mars said. I'd make him a dark, spooky character and lose all that happy-go-lucky baggage. Banks disagrees and likes the more fun animated feel of the
0: character's original concept. I don't know. Blue Devil, if you do that, he's a blue (laughs) hellboy. Essentially, that's what it is. Yeah. It's really strange. Uh, Last one here, Dr. Fate. And of course, Mars wrote Dr. Strange Fate, which he mentions here. So in the first pages of the first issue, I'd have some guy put a bullet in current Fate, Jared Stevens' head, and bring in a psychic team to draw Fate out of Stevens. The gold helmet guys would be part of a dark government cabal who wanted to use Dr. Fate, but the helmet gets away from them. I'd have the helmet bounce around for a few issues, pass through a few hands, until it falls into the hands of Dr. Fate's new identity. I'd give him a look close to the Amalgam Comics Dr. Strange strange fate bank says that helmet's the main thing i really like that helmet a lot but i love that concept i like the idea of the dr fate helmet jumping around to a bunch of people that would be a very fun way to make they character actually did interesting that in
1: young justice the tv show season three like the original dr fate dies and then like zatanna her father and like two other people take turns wearing the helmet so that the person wearing it doesn't go criminally insane over wearing it all the time and it was a really cool concept in the show
0: i like i dug it <laughs> Did Ron Mars write that episode? Somebody go to IMDb. <laughs> Should have gotten a story by credit at least. Come on. All right. Now our next feature here is Last Man Standing. And it's the closest we get to a justification for the Hulk cover as Wizard ranks the 10 toughest superheroes in comics and pits them against each other with the Hulk coming in at the bottom of the list. Of course, a few years later, you know, you guys know Last Man Standing becomes the name of a very popular ongoing feature in Wizard where guest artists pit characters from different publishers against each other these like imaginary battles that fans have always wanted to see you know so that's very cool but this is where that started i guess here is how it shakes down guys okay so if the hulk was number 10 you're probably asking who's number nine who is stronger than the hulk firestorm that guy again it's noted that ronnie raven can change the molecular structure of all inanimate matter which is a pretty big plus but the mental might of professor charles xavier gets the x-men's mentor the number eight spot saying that Chuck could telepathically convince Roddy and the professor to split apart, making them both powerless. Oh, but then they say Spawn arrives because he gets lucky number seven to beat the mutant cue ball because his thoughts are so disturbing that it would distract the professor long enough for Spawn to demolish him. I love that idea. So professor X is like, How do I? Oh, no, oh,
2: <laughs> you're sick, man. Yeah. You're demented. <laughs> Plus, what he's the... a friend of Wizards, so that, <laughs> yeah, that kicks exactly. a few points.
0: <laughs> but the perfect foil for a hell spot apparently, is Doctor Strange at number six, because he's battled foes in many dimensions and doesn't have to worry about depleting his mystic energies like Spawn. The Flash, though, zooms past Stephen Strange to be ranked number five because he can just move faster than some corny old sorcerer. But Wonder Woman's toughness gives her the advantage to be number four because she can outlast Wally West in a fight. You know, long enough to detect a pattern and then outmaneuver him. And then in a major upset, I think people will say, non-electric blue Superman ends up in third because he can outlast Princess Diana by getting recharged with Earth's yellow sun. But... Unfortunately, Supes is vulnerable to magic, so Thor beats him to the number two spot with the magical might of Mjolnir and centuries of warrior cunning. And he's a god, <laughs> yeah. period.
1: Marvel fans will always say, oh, Superman's too powerful. I'm like, Thor is a god, <laughs>
0: <laughs> period. <laughs> but then, who is the number one toughest hero in comics, okay? Who is the guy that's going to lay everybody else to waste? The Silver Surfer. Is yeah. he the toughest, though, or... Like, I would,
1: I never classified, if if he was that tough. Why is he the herald of Galactus? Why is he like <laughs> controlled
0: by Galactus, right? Shouldn't galactus be number one then in theory? like well, according to Wizard, his power cosmic trumps everyone because it's basically godlike power. He's the most powerful being in the cosmos that isn't a villain, I guess is, is their justification. What do you think, Greg? Would you have put your check mark on Silver Surfer back in the day? Silver Surfer is fine as long as it's not Batman or Captain America
2: because I know. <laughs> I know wizard was really big on that stuff like batman with batman could prepare for everybody he could prepare for fighting a god and we sort of did one of these yeah and said yes let's please let's just go to lunch and and uh <laughs> yes captain in. america would beat everybody on the planet yes you know
0: it's taco bell tuesday <laughs> Well, that's the thing in the JLA special that came out just prior to this, they did the same thing of what if all the Justice League members fought each other? And yeah, Batman won. Batman.
2: won. Yeah, no. It was, Power of Babel, it was, right? Yeah. yeah. It's
1: also like, you know, when you're a kid, you're like,
0: which wrestler would be better? I think the ultimate warrior could be the Hulk Hogan.
1: <laughs> get your dogs ready let's battle (laughs) michael why don't you read this next piece here also in this issue is an x-men themed feature called the usual suspects which is fitting since the director of that film was about to bring marvel's mutants to the big screen this is basically a speculative piece on which of the x-men characters perpetuated the assassination of Senator Graydon Creed, leading to the zero-tolerance storyline in the X-Books that summer. This is very similar to the hot topic of who is the x traitor, which was the subject of much debate and discussion in the early days of Wizard once Bishop showed up on the scene, a question which wasn't answered until the Onslaught storyline the previous year in 1996. Suspects include Apocalypse, Mr. Sinister, Mystique, Sabretooth, Sebastian Shaw, The Upstarts, Havoc, The Friends of Humanity, and The Baddie on the Scene, Bastion. Once again, Wizard polled its AOL users on Wizard World, and 37% declared. That they didn't believe Great and Creed was actually dead, but if there was a front rudder for his assassination, it was Bastion with twenty percent. Several write-in votes were for dark horses like Iceman, Pyro, Jamie Madrox, the Multiple Man, and Senator
0: Robert Kelly. Assassinating the competition, right? But I just Seriously. love that they're like it's a conspiracy. He's not dead. We know how this works now. We got it figured out. If he is dead, it will be back in three issues. You'll see yeah. magic. <laughs> um, do you guys enjoy these types
1: of mysteries in the comics or is the whole who shot Jr." thing played out <laughs> to this point? Like, is it just over with or do you like this kind of mystery? Things? I will say, you know, I've said it many times like identity crisis mysteries, one of my favorite like comics mysteries, but you know,
0: yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. I mean, that that's probably like the shining star of examples where it works. Yeah, because I don't know, like murder mysteries are fine for general entertainment, but I don't, I mean, like, yeah, Batman is always solving murder mysteries, it feels like. But I don't like when it's like, oh, it's a full event and it sets this whole thing off and then it's like, that's the big topic of discussion. It's like, who cares? Like, it's it's more interesting how you got there than who the actual assassin was, is how yeah. I feel. But wait! There's more Marvel madness to be had as Back in Time delves deeper into the plans for the Flashback Month event where every Marvel title will tell a story set 10 years prior to the current continuity. Now, these books are being published as negative one issues. I love that. We've had zero issues. We've had half issues. we got to go to negative one issues. And they're going to feature larger corner boxes and retro logos and even the Comics Code Authority seal just to recreate that 60s style. Now, it's revealed that original X Men writer Scott Lobdell pitched the gimmick only for the X books, but then editor in chief Bob Harris decided to expand it across the entire line. According to Harris, "quote This event shows that the Marvel universe has always been a fascinating place, even before there were heroes in it." But you might be asking, is that the case for all twenty five flashback stories? Because man, like you said, it's the whole company just saying we're going back ten years. I originally scoffed at this concept when we read it in Wizard News a few issues back, but then I spent this last week reading the one shots and the majority of them are very fun like the, the flashback issues they aren't just like throwaway stories most of them actually serve to answer a lot of questions in the history of the characters like these are like essential pieces unless it was explained before they're just retelling it but I don't think so like for example like the Wolverine story by Larry Hama explains how he got his cowboy hat haven't you wondered why he always wearing that cowboy hat and why he loves cigars it was Nick Fury just shoved a cigar in his mouth and he's like hey I kind of like that <laughs> (laughs) And then he also meets up with a pre-thing Ben Grimm who gives him the nickname Knucklehead. And Wolverine's like, oh, I'll have to remember that one, which is kind of funny. Now, there's also The Untold Tales of Spider-Man, which has a great story. It's like a James Bond adventure where Peter Parker's parents are a pair of super spies. And the art is by John Romita. So it's in the classic 60s look. Like, it's fantastic. My favorite was probably the Ghost Rider story. I wasn't expecting it because it deals with Johnny Blaze and Danny Ketch's mom who apparently was the ghost writer before them. And so it fills in all these like details about like how her origin plays into their origin and how Danny Ketch found her bike and it was supposed to be for his sister Barbara. Like there's all this stuff like and they're like, "Oh, wow." Do, I mean, that's do you
1: remember that the Amazing Spider-Man, mm-hmm. I think it was 2, tried to play on this idea that the parents were super spies? yep they pulled well, that well from that this. that
0: is part of continuity yeah because like that is something that eventually was revealed they were spies but this is just like okay but what did their adventures look like
1: you know what it on the one hand that's kind of cool but on two i hate it <laughs> i like that peter parker is just any guy like mm-hmm. you know it's not that his like that's what, what, what i hate about what bothers me with dc right now is everything is batman centric everything revolves around batman like it it shouldn't you know peter parker should just be some kid that just got some weird accident happened to him like that's how it was meant to be you know
0: yeah i mean it does feel like maybe it's uh, a little too much but Hey, made for a good story in this case, at least. Speaking of kind of the everyman thing, though, Michael, uh, the Daredevil story is really sweet because as has battling Jack Murdock, tried to protect his blind, helpless son during his first day at college and realizing the kid could actually take care of himself because he has superpowers. But <laughs> <laughs> And finally, the X-Men books give a look at the final moments of Eric Lensher becoming like full on Magneto after a final disagreement with Charles Xavier at a concentration camp. It's like all leading into that first issue of Uncanny X-Men. And so they did do a lot of interesting things here, but I'm curious, Greg, do you remember this event? Did you ever pick up or read through any of these issues? I did,
2: but probably more as an editor than a, a comic book reader. I love the fact that they drew Stanley into all the comic books. That was a great sort of homage. And I remember some of the stories being very good. You know, others I, you know, I I will politely pass on saying uh, you know, they served a function. Uh, And it was great that they weren't all connected so that you could just pick and choose your battles. And and that was something that was generally lacking in that time period. You know, everything was connected. You know, everything was part one of 50. And, Uh, you know, if you missed a part, you might have been lost. Uh, And I like the idea that comics can just be self-contained. You take one story and then you move on.
0: Yeah, they did. They did a great job, like you said, with the majority of them. And some of them were just like, okay, like the the one that disappointed me most was Electra because it was just like Electra and Matt in College and Love. Like, I'm pretty sure Frank Miller already did that. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right, but our next one here, Duran in Japan, a small press tour, is a two-page special report by the creator of A Distant Soil, Colleen Duran, who along with other indie comics creators like Jeff Smith, Fred Schott, and Jules Pfeiffer, took a trip to the home of manga that was sponsored by the Japanese publishers over there, looking to exchange ideas with American creators. Duran explains, lots of things are different for comics artists here than they are in America. Some top artists are treated like American rock stars. They're followed practically everywhere by paparazzi photographers and mobs of screaming kids. Some weeklies can reach sales of 5 or 6 million each. Yes, those are weeklies. The Japanese do crank out a lot of work. There are many stories of artists dropping dead from overwork at age 30 or 40. We're informed that the average life expectancy of a Japanese cartoonist is only 60. The Japanese occasionally reveal themselves to be ignorant of American comics as we are of Japanese comics. They think Bone and A Distant Soil are typical American superhero books. Yeah, right. Wow. <laughs> that is wild i i love but just we've been having these articles coming through about like you know the japanese comic book industry and in, in various issues of the magazine and i'm fascinated just of how like i knew it was big like you know anime and manga were huge over there but just to understand that like it happened for two years here with like seven guys that were a big deal and then <laughs> outside of that you know comic book artists and writers are anonymous again now I'm actually curious, Greg, for you, because Wizard, you know, before like the anime invasion magazine and and they were, you know, manga was a a feature of the magazine. They knew it was growing. Do you remember much discussion just about like, hey, we got to get more manga in the magazine. Kids are loving it.
2: Yeah, uh, this was my first issue. So I inherited manga scene as one of my regular editorial duties. I really loved the idea that we were covering a different facet of comic books. Like Tom Palmer Jr., he did the independent comics, which was sorely kind of lacking, and manga. With that, we had a more comprehensive coverage as opposed to just Marvel and DC. I thought that was great. And that was, this was a great time for, for manga and anime because it was still very select So you only got the best stuff coming over. Now it's like the floodgates are open and you get absolute drivel that anybody can import. And, um, you know, it's like, uh, Oh, here's another tentacle monster, you know, uh, (laughs) but at the, at the time, you know, there was a very limited amount of stuff coming over from Japan and it was just the best of the best. And we had a guy, uh, Carl Horn, who knew his stuff. Um, in fact, I think he lived in Japan at the time. Oh. So, yeah, I was happy we were doing that stuff. And I think our coverage only improved as,
0: as time went on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it just gets bigger and bigger, like we say, until it became its whole own department at Wizard and its own magazine. So, that's pretty yes. great. <laughs> hey there, geeks. Time to take a break to talk about our sponsor, Manscaped. Michael. Let's consider the great beards of comic books. Uh, How about Tony Stark, Doctor Strange, Eric Masterson, Thunderstrike? Yeah, how about the maestro from the Hulk? That guy had a monster beard.
1: Sure did. Also, they've got Green Arrow, the Aquaman of the 90s had that really thick beard, Deathstroke the Terminator, Commissioner Jim Gordon, and one of my personal favorites, Beard Hunter, the serial killer that hunts down people with beards.
0: Oh, no. Am I safe, Michael? I don't know. You are not
1: safe. You are not (laughs) safe at all.
0: Well, you know who's here to save the day, though, is Manscaped, because we have great news for superheroes and citizens alike, because Manscaped is once again revolutionizing men's grooming with the brand new Beard Hedger Pro Kit. From a beard trim to a fresh shave, the technology behind the Beard Hedger Pro Kit allows you to shape your signature beard look.
1: Now, you can use Manscaped products that make your drapes match your carpet by going to manscaped.com using the code WIZARDS20 for 20% off and free shipping.
0: No one likes a weird beard, so say goodbye to all your stubble trouble with Manscaped's Pro Beard Kit.
1: Manscaped sent us both the Beard Hedger Pro Kit, and Adam, you're out there growing your beard like it's pretty crazy. You did this just to use this device. What's your experience been so far?
0: It has been fantastic. I just feel like every time I get to pull out my Beard Hedger Pro Kit, I'm just having a, a great moment. Just like, hey, how about a little bit here? How about a little bit there? Ooh, yeah, I'm really taking care of myself now. And so it's it's been fun. And I've been getting compliments all over the place. Dude, like I'm just the out beard is out. a great look for you. It really is. Yeah, I mean, it, it works really well. So maybe if you're looking for a new style for 2023, this might be it. Uh, but it all starts with that Beard Hedger. The thing is, it's a juggernaut of fixing faces not the Juggernaut. He's very clean shaven, Uh, but it's a cordless trimmer. It has this rotary wheel. It is so cool. Uh, What I love about it is it it has 20 haircutting legs. You just roll it here and it is so gentle. It works perfectly. Just getting those little touch-ups.
1: So I use it a lot to, like, do the edging underneath my mustache and, like, around your chin area and everything. It cleans up all that stuff. It's really fantastic. And I just got one from my dad because he's been having issues with all of his beard tumors. The battery doesn't last his whole face. He's like, I did, like, four shavings and this thing still kept going with, with a long battery life, which is pretty wild.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic. It has one guard, but you get 20 lengths. It's very utilitarian in that way.
1: Plus, it's waterproof, so you can shave in the shower and avoid all the hair all over the sink. And trust me, my wife can't stand that, so that's where I have to shave is the shower. <laughs> And actually, and- Michael,
0: I got to tell you about the other stuff that they have going on here because the beard shampoo and conditioner is like my favorite thing. Uh-huh. I love the idea of getting in the shower, like you're saying, and then what do you do? You lather up your beard first before anything else. You're just like, oh, yeah, this is this is luxury right here. Like, it's so fun. I don't know. Like, I just never considered pampering myself in that way. This area here, you know, but it, because it's designed to moisturize, reduce ingrown hairs, replace natural oils and promote beard health, and I feel it after I use it. But they also have a beard oil. It's like that essential piece for your, your main facial accessory, if you want to say, because, you know, you don't want a brittle and dry beard. Like, it's it's super soft, and it's nice and moisturized. The oil relieves the dryness, both on the beard and the skin underneath, because that's the other thing, too. You don't want to get all itchy and all that. Mm-hmm. It gives you a little shiver shine. You look extra fine.
1: Finally, the beard kit comes with a beard balm, a pomade that shapes, styles and moisturize and tames the sculpted look, plus three free gifts, a beard brush, a comb, and scissors to ensure your beard is ready to impress
0: yeah so guys this is the time you gotta jump on it get your 20 percent off and free shipping with the code wizards20 at manscaped.com that's 20 percent off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the promo code wizards20 manscapes beard hedger guys one stroke one guard 20 lengths now back to the show <laughs> Finally here, though, as we close out, the Wizard Q&A with Jeff Loeb brings us back to a familiar topic because it is a very insightful look into what the aftermath of Rob Liefeld being terminated from Heroes Reborn meant to this movie producer-writer-turned-comic-book author. So for those who don't know, just this was actually surprising to me, Loeb's movie credits included Schwarzenegger's Commando, Teen Wolf, and at this time it was about to come out, the Howie Long movie, firestorm we can't get away from firestorm this issue what is going on (laughs) in all his forms Uh, But Loeb mentions that he is very loyal to his collaborators like Tim Sale on The Long Halloween and Ian Churchill on Cable, preferring only to write books where he feels he has a strong partnership with the artist. And such was the case with Liefeld on Avengers and Captain America, about which Loeb provides some details to the public for the first time. Says Loeb, quote, I don't know that anybody really understands that the people at Marvel who originally made the Heroes Reborn deal with Jim and Rob were no longer at the company by the time the first issues of all the Heroes Reborn titles had shipped. After Marvel terminated the agreement, they tried to renegotiate Liefeld's portion of the agreement. So they're right there. You're just like, people are just like, oh, they didn't like Rob. They told them to get lost. It's like, mm, there was something going on here. They wanted him, but they wanted him at a different price, right? That's how Rob tells the story. So how did Loeb survive being terminated along with Liefeld? He says, quote, When Scott Lobdell decided to leave Iron Man, he recommended me. Rob's feeling was that if I was on Iron Man, it would make the second half go much smoother since we were all working towards the same goal of issue number 12 the next day rob called and explained that marvel terminated him i talked to him about it and he was very generous because rob's not going to be compensated for it and he has given me permission to share the ideas that he had for the conclusion of the storyline I know Rob's a controversial guy, but he's done very right by me. Maybe the next time somebody decides to pick up a bat and bash his brains in, they should read those issues of Captain America and Avengers that he worked on. If they like the run, they should realize it couldn't have happened without Rob. (laughs) And I was like, I thought he was going to go a totally different direction. Next time they pick up a bash his brains in, they should think that he's a real good guy. It's like, no, look at his work. No. No. (laughs) That's not the key. (laughs) um, Jeff, I'm sorry. Um, So, Greg, as we know, Wizard rarely missed an opportunity to mock Rob Liefeld in the magazine. So do you, as a staffer there at this time, have any insight as to why he was so easy to pick on? And then why, in contrast, Jim Lee seemed to walk on water? Part of it was the culture at
2: Wizard. There was a a sort of mentality that there were very easy targets, and sometimes we jumped on that a little bit too much. I think with Rob Liefeld, there was that Levi's ad that everybody cites as sort of pretentious and, and a little bit uppity for say comic book fans. And on top of that, you know, Liefeld's art style, it's not as refined as Jim Lee's. You had the classic image of, of Captain America with the bosoms, you know, uh, just absolutely ridiculous. You know, the, the, uh, parodies where you could never see ankles and stuff. So Liefeld was a target. It turns out in real life, he's a nice guy. If for just some reason, he picked he, uh, he ticked off comic book fans and Wizard uh, sort of perpetuated that
0: yeah definitely contributed to it in a big way so much so that uh <laughs> even if you're associated with wizard he hates you even if you he just like a magazine all. yeah <laughs> <He> <laughs> even what? if you Does? just report on the magazine but you didn't write it uh he still hates you so but yeah but no that, that it, it definitely just seems to be the case his art was inconsistent and however i mean I've, I've always said this he is a good idea guy always for the first issue or so you're like oh this is a cool concept and then it just fades away so it is
1: i almost feel like i I don't mean this in disrespect but i feel like he's at times a little one-dimensional as the 90s evolved his art style didn't evolve with it where other artists could kind of like get out of that spiky armed 92 era to like we're in 97 98 where that kind of goes away and they're going for a different tone on things that's just my take
0: yeah I mean it's it's definitely he has his signature look and you know it's Liefeld and you either like it or you don't like it a lot of people really don't like it so well established but yeah so it's just it's just something that you know Wizard like you said Greg probably pushed that a little too hard here and there and especially as uh, time goes on here as he leaves Captain America and Fighting American happens and suddenly it's like oh no you're like (laughs) you just gave us a whole bunch more fuel for the fire but uh, let's talk about this because we know that uh, Rob had a lot of dealing in Hollywood, never got anything made, but was constantly meeting with Spielberg and Will Smith and Tom Cruise wanted to make his fantastic projects. So Michael, why don't you take us into Heroes in Motion.
1: Okay, so the first one is Batman Light. This is a full article devoted to the superhero blockbuster of 1997, Batman and Robin. The article opens with a recounting of the last day of shooting on the film, where director Joel Schumacher jokingly declared to his cast and crew, Friday we shoot number one of Batman 5. Chris and George should be in makeup by 4 a.m. Little did he know the joke was on him. Schumacher's comedic take is revealed to be a conscious choice as he admits this is definitely not Frank Miller's view of Batman. Not at all. Justifying the change of pace, he adds, you go to the comic book store, you'll see at least a dozen versions of Batman. From the darkest gothic vampire to whatever is the most humorous one that month we have so many audiences to serve with a batman film and so many toys to sell that's our commentary (laughs) (laughs) of his lead actor in the rubber suit schumacher stated george is the most humane the most accessible batman less of a dark brooding batman Clooney says jokingly of inheriting the mantle of the bat it's also easier to be the third batman I think then Val had being the second Batman. I actually remember reading this article. I remember this. Oh, wow. So I remember the, him, those exact words that he said. I remember this. Because now we've established that I'm quite easily replaced. <laughs> <laughs> Regarding the practicality of the bat suit as a crime fighting attire, Clooney adds it's just heavy and it's really hard to wear and you can't move. It's so funny. If you had to really wear this thing, everybody would kick the hell out of you. <laughs> Clooney also seems to be at peace with Arnold Schwarzenegger getting top billing. I'll be overshadowed. That's part of the gig. Batman isn't the most interesting character in the Batman projects. A quote from the film's Mr. Freeze confirms this. They're going to call the film Batman and Arnold.
0: <laughs> now read it in your Arnold voice. Go. Oh, God. <clears throat>
1: They're going to call it Batman and Arnold. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I got to point out, like looking at these images, how did no one think this movie was going to suck? Especially the like big full page picture of uh, Poison Ivy. And I'm just like, how do you not know this is going to be a bad movie? Like, this Well, is...
0: Wizard called it, like in a in a previous issue leading up to it, in like the top 10 heroes and villains that I read on a mini episode, it just adds in, by the way, how crappy does that Batman and Robin movie look? Like, <laughs> they just dropped it right in, though, are like, we know. And We're going to do a whole what? article about it, but we know.
1: Truthfully, though, like, this isn't the first time that the villain got the top billing. Like, Jack Nicholson got the top billing over Michael Keaton. Yeah, the from the beginning. Batman. Yeah. Like, just from Jump. Like, it is what it is. The article doesn't have much to say about Uma Thurman as Poison Ivy, Alicia Silverstone as Batgirl, or Chris O'Donnell returning as Robin. But a sidebar does address the rumor that shock jock Howard Stern was in the running to play the Scarecrow in the fifth Batman film. But Wizard reports that both Stern and Schumacher have denied that he is involved in any way with a film that was believed to be in theaters in 1999.
0: I remember that being a serious thing, though. I totally misread that back in the day. I was like, "Yeah, Howard Stern was supposed to play the Scarecrow." <laughs> Not True the man. case.
2: It's just such a weird movie. The opening scene—it's a uh, nipples, ass, and crotch. Yeah. <laughs> so, kind of know what you're getting right away. It's too long. It's got too much going on, but to its credit, you know, and and you know, here I'm going to draw some flack, but. To its credit, it has some really good moments between uh, George Clooney and the the guy playing Alfred. You know, you you see Alfred tending to a young Bruce Wayne. You know, you see their relationship as adults. I think that works very well. And to be honest, um, Batman, like uh, skyboarding on a, uh, you know- on a door. Yeah, from (laughs) space. It, It actually speaks to me more than, say- you know, like Batman driving down the wrong side of the highway in the rain, chasing the penguin, endangering God knows how many lives when he, you know, like... Yeah, nobody died in that scene. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, if you're asking me, do I like whimsical Batman as as opposed to, you know, casual indifference Batman, give me whimsical Batman every day. I think there's something to be said about that particular goofy side of Batman that's played out you know, for years and years.
0: It's a spectacle, you know, like that's what these movies yeah. are. You're paying for a spectacle. You yes, know it is? not like, to
2: say that it's a good movie. It's not a good movie by not, any stretch yeah. of the imagination. But, you know, it has that particular charm to it. There's a world
1: where they could have made this a better movie. I don't know what they were trying to draw from, whether it was, you know, the 66 Batman or the 50s comics. I'm not really sure. But like there was a way to make this movie Family-friendly, but also mature enough to not be cuckoo bananas that this movie is. And essentially, this killed Joel Schumacher's career. Like, other than Phone Booth, he didn't really make anything after this, really. He was like, maybe Thin Red Line. and But no one knows that he was did those movies. It's just like, you know, it was just gone. And, uh, you know, it's so bizarre because he because he does Falling Down, which is an amazing film. And then he makes this. And you're just like,
0: how did that same guy make these two movies? This is a good place as Eddie is. For those who are not subscribed to our Patreon yet, maybe this is something that will get you in. But Michael and I are bringing back our 90s super cinema series in a new tier on our Patreon. And the first one up that Michael wants to talk about is Batman Forever. So we're going to go there and see where the Schumacher began fits. there. <laughs> where yeah. the Schumacher fits. <laughs> nice. Good Put work. Put that on a shirt. He is proud of himself, folks. <laughs> <laughs> if the shoe marker fits. Yep. That's gonna be our, our biggest selling shirt in the T public store. All right, going but take us into this next piece here. <gasps> oh my goodness. So Chan
1: Kicks Into Comics reports that Jackie Chan has agreed to lend his likeness to a six-issue miniseries for Topps Comics titled Spartan X, which will be written and drawn by Michael Golden, former Marvel editor on She-Hulk and other books. Renee Witter, Witterstatter, Witterstatter? Yeah. was friends with Chan and pitched the concept of a mercenary trying to solve an X-Files-type mystery. Jackie explains his reaction. When she first mentioned the idea of publishing my own comic book, I was delighted and thought it would be kind of fun. Can you guys think of a good comic starring a movie or TV star that wasn't a direct adaptation of an existing property they were starred in?
0: it's interesting right because this is this is jackie chan in basically a movie or a tv series as a comic book that's what this is this isn't an adaptation of a movie so like you know because it makes me think of something like the mr t uh jim shooter did that mr t comic book that had the painted Mm. like neil adams covers you know like that kind of stuff where it's just like here's the star but not in anything you've ever seen before like or that charles barkley one-shot comic where he's dressed as dick tracy or i don't know if you guys ever saw the charles barkley version versus godzilla i mean there have been a lot of interesting things but good (laughs) critically acclaimed what do you think
1: there was a game a video game that was starring an actor and like he was some sort of like keanu reeves it was like a time traveling cop of some sort but it wasn't time cop okay and it was it was like a i had the game too oh i'm blanking on the top of my head what sister was it for it was either for Genesis or for PlayStation Two. Kind of look it up. Wasn't Shaq Fu? No, it wasn't Shaq Fu. Now I'm doing some deep Google. You guys keep talking, and I'll figure it out.
0: Hell yeah! How about you, Greg? Have you thought of people lending their likeness to a comic book? Yeah, I was thinking of the Kiss comics. There were a couple of them. Yes, and and some of them were pretty
2: good. The the old Marvels, mm-hmm. and even uh, you know the uh, the Kiss Psycho Circus, which was, as I recall, pretty. Pretty mind-bogglingly bizarre. Uh, So, yeah, maybe maybe the Kiss comics.
0: Why did I not go there? I have a full run of Psycho (laughs) Circus. I have the original printed in Kiss Blood Marvel Super Special. Why did I not think of that? That is perfect. Wow, Greg making me smile. (laughs) I I mentioned Shaq there real quick. I will say that in this issue, they interview Shaq about Steel because he was recovering from an injury. So he had time for a phone call and they're just like, Hey, what do you think about Steel? "Ah, Most people aren't going to like it, but you know, it's good. I guess it's got a lot of special effects. Yeah. (laughs) Like he has nothing to say. Oh, Michael, did you find it? I found it there was a
1: video game called Apocalypse starring Bruce Willis.
0: Of course it would be Bruce Willis for you. What? I was, I was like, I know I had this game. It was, <laughs> it was Bruce Willis in Apocalypse. That is wild. All right, I want to take this next piece here because this issue features the first mention of the Justice League of America TV pilot, that infamous piece of, mm. uh, that was being produced for CBS. Now, the light up for this live action version of the JLA, for those of you who don't know, Consisted of the Guy Gardner Green Lantern, Al Pratt the Atom, so like the Golden Age of the Atom, Fire, Ice, Martian Manhunter and the Barry Allen Flash but Wizard confirms it's not being played by John Wesley Shipp from the 1990 series. It's an all new cast but there was one bit of casting I feel should have frightened comics fans as the Adam was being portrayed by John Cassier, the actor who voiced the Crypt Keeper on HBO's Tales from the Crypt series. Man. I don't know. It's not available in full on YouTube now. I'm sure Warner Brothers and you know, Discovery and whoever owns it now has been it. Daily like, motion. Oh, there you go. The wild west of the internet. Have you guys ever watched this? Have you seen in full the JLA TV pilot? I haven't watched it in full, but I, I was watching it today.
2: I made it 40 minutes in before I had to stop for personal reasons. Uh <laughs> it's it's really kind of goofy and and uh you know low budget, but I did like the actress who played Fire. I thought she was an interesting cast and I was I was surprised at how much better an actress she is than everybody else around her. And I also liked the, you know, the real world style vignettes, you know, where they're interviewed and, and they're talking about their, you know, superhero lives and all the wacky things that happened to them. I think that was an interesting sort of addition to the pilot. And I would have liked to have seen how it played out, but of course, you know, I, I could tell right away... It, you know, 15 minutes in, you realize this thing Is not going to get picked up by anybody.
0: No, it's it's very goofy. It it definitely feels like it fits in the universe though of Lois and Clark, the New Adventures of Superman, where it's got a little wink to it, where everything's just like we're not taking this seriously. We don't want this to be a cool adventure. We got to make fun of ourselves, and the costumes are terrible. They're bad. So
1: bad. bad. Is that James Marsden playing Green Lantern? No,
0: not at all. It looks like him. No, but the weird thing is, is the Martian Manhunter actually looks pretty. Pretty cool they mostly show him in shadow but like he's in like his spaceship that becomes their base and all this stuff like those are the best scenes when he's like assembling the team and all that but overall you're just like oh man but yeah. michael why don't you take us into some other uh dc excitement of the era okay also in dc comics
1: live action news a casting call for an aquaman series on the wb network has gone out in hollywood Eventually, the series gets a pilot in 2006 called Mercy Reef, which I bought on iTunes.
0: Yes, it it's not. available, yeah.
1: Yes, I bought it when it first came out and I have, I think I still have it. because <laughs> so it's a purchase on iTunes; you have it forever. That was attempting to spin off from Smallville, but it did not get picked up for a series. It's just amazing that Warner Brothers was attempting to produce the show a decade before and it still failed to launch. It's actually not a bad pilot at all. Justin Hartley, who plays Green Arrow in Smallville and of this is us fame is Aquaman.
0: Wait, so he played green arrow and Aquaman. on He was the series? Aquaman
1: first. And oh. then because he didn't get the gig for, for the, the pilot of this Aquaman show, ended up landing the Green Arrow role on Smallville instead.
0: Wow, that's weird.
1: <laughs> I think Lou Diamond Phillips plays his dad, the land dad, so to speak. I was surprised they didn't get picked up. It was pretty good because it was one of those things where they were like, they put it out on iTunes. It was just like early ability to buy stuff on iTunes. And they've tried to like get that audience and see how people would buy it. And it still didn't get enough clicks, I guess. One I more know. one more shot, yeah. I was bummed they didn't make it, because it would have been pr- pretty cool. And the visual effects weren't terrible for A, a pilot, and B, 2006. Speaking of long development, though, a brief mention is made of director Michael Michel, develop- Michel Gondry. Michel, Michel Gondry. Michel <laughs> Gondry. A brief mention is made of director Michel Gondry. Uh, <laughs> Developing a Green Hornet film, a movie that finally gets made in 2011, starring Seth Rogen. 14 years that
0: movie was in the works. Michelle Gondry, like, he he was the director. Like, he saw it through all that time. That is amazing to me. Amazing.
1: But like, I remember the amount of like casting calls or like, you know, rumors of who was going to play, you know, Green Hornet, who was going to play. Well, like Kevin you
0: know, Smith, they're like, oh, it's going to be based on a Kevin Smith script. And then they turn yeah. that into a comic. And yeah,
1: um, I bought that Kevin Smith comic. I, I have the entire run of that one, actually. Oh. Um, but there was like the guy who played um, uh, Bruce Lee and Dragon, the Bruce Lee story was going to be, you know, Kato at one point or another. Like, yeah,
0: it constantly. Well, remember, we, we read that green hornet blurb that was in wizard where it said he was going to shoot fireballs kato was going to shoot fireballs like ryu from yeah. street fighter 2 <laughs> i gotta say like i i saw green hornet in theaters didn't care for it i laughed once when seth rogan goes who makes my coffee <laughs> like i don't know that that just cracked me up but then michelle godry did make one of my favorite movies which is be kind rewind i don't know if you guys have seen that movie. i, I know that That's movie funny. Yeah, I, I have it. Yeah, I have very quirky, very fun. Jack Black. Yeah, it's, it's good. A,
1: a lot of like film school nerds like myself love that movie. Like, I yeah, bet. See- <laughs> How about some shows that never made it off the drawing board? Fox has announced 28 new series in development, and Wizard provides the synopsis for a few superhero-related concepts. Manhattan Man is not based on the naked blue Watchman character, but instead tells the story of a district attorney who is forced to take on a family superhero legacy from his elderly father. Boo. After a recessive gene gives his older brother second rate powers.
0: Wow. I love
1: this. That is so that is too much. That is a hat on a
0: hat. There's that a lot a going long on there. Log line there.
1: <laughs> the long log line. Um there's also blade squad, a police squad that moves on jet-powered rollerblades, which is so 90s.
0: That is something I would have drawn. I must have thing, drawn that, that in my junior high, like humanities. <laughs> in your class. magazine, Blade you were squad. there.
2: That was that was just Rob Ulster <laughs> trying to fill space, right? That was like
0: it says. Brandon Tardikov, former head of NBC yeah. programming, was the producer. Oh sure,
2: Brandon Tardikov, <laughs> like he's a real person. Nice try, Rob Ulster. <laughs>
0: Oh
1: my god. Writer of
2: Trailer Park indeed.
1: (laughs) This would have been the most 90s show ever produced because like rollerblades were so big and oh my god, jet-powered rollerblades. Like, how do we make uh pro stars in live action? Yeah. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Finally, Wizard provides a two-page special report on Men in Black, a little film being adapted. From a comic originally published by Air Cell and later Malibu Comics. Producer Walter F. Parks explains, The thing that drew us immediately to Men in Black was that it was a comic book that dealt with the human characters rather than monsters and superheroes. Parks also explains, While holding up a promotional t-shirt reading in 1994, they arrived. That was in 1992. And everybody was very optimistic. Guess what? It's 1997. It took a little longer than expected. But hopefully, the wait will be worth it. Did it come 97? Yeah. And is I'm that like, crazy? Really? What wow, yeah. was later than that. I guess. Well, that no, was right after Independence Day, right? So basically, a year, yeah. The yeah year, so a, year a year later. A year yeah. later. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense then. All right. Well.
0: Who knew? Yeah, but I mean it's it's crazy because I think to this day still nobody thinks of Men in Black as a comic book adaptation. A hundred percent never yeah. on anybody's mind.
1: But there's been a handful of movies like that 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 came out that people would have never known were a comic book. Like Wanted, even though it's kind of like the bastardized version of the comic, yeah, is technically a comic book movie. It doesn't you know. resemble it at all though. Um, yeah. Mystery, mystery of violence, Man. mystery oh, yeah. men. Uh, a History of Violence is one of the best films I've ever seen, and that's a comic book movie. Thirty Days um, of Night,
0: Road, Road to Perdition.
1: To, Road to Perdition is another amazing film that was based off a comic book. People don't even know that, but um, but yeah, Men in Black. You would have never guessed was a was a comic book movie. Speaking of the hype of all these legendary mystery comic book movies, Adam, what do you got for Jim and Todd's hype machine?
0: Yeah, <laughs> transition, baby. Here's the thing. There's no major news for either Jim or Todd outside of the Heroes Reborn reports of this issue, but obviously we know they were two very large figures in the history of Wizard Magazine throughout its entire run. So, Greg, we have to ask, did you ever have interactions with either of these legends while you were at Wizard? Jim or Todd ever passed through on the phone or otherwise? We stole Jim Lee's hat uh, (laughs) at at
2: San Diego Comic-Con. Jim McLaughlin was the guy who uh, snatched the hat and he passed it to me. And then we had an elaborate scheme where I ran one direction. I faked a handoff to another guy and I uh, threw the the hat to an intern in an elevator. And the intern went up the elevator and we absconded with the uh, the hat. (laughs) That was Jim chasing you the whole time? Yeah, he was was very upset. Of course, we stole his hat. (laughs) And Jim, you know, you you think about it, it's like, oh, it's a wizard prank, it's a fun prank. But it was actually kind of violent. You know, we grabbed (laughs) it off his head, and then people are running around, you know, (laughs) trying to confuse him. And, you know, finally we made off with his hat. And you know, this is why we
1: can't get him on the podcast.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Here's a here's a poor guy who's uh become, you know, a target for us. And every year they steal his hat and i just happened to play like you know jim told me like look i'm going to give you the hat cuz you run fast and you run to the elevator and you take a hand off so so you were the flash he, of the wizard he office. drew up
1: a play like on his hand like here you're going you're going
2: you're going to do a button was, hook out here it was really complicated was flea flicker. I mean, you know we, for for you know magazine editors we're not uh, particularly brilliant people But we pulled it off and, you know, uh, we got his hat. And uh, I think in the time since I've apologized for my role in that, because really who wants their hat stolen? Nobody wants. You helped keep him humble. This this bald head needs a hat. So trust me, I feel for him. If I can impart on you and your your listeners and your fans, it's if you have a hat, you want to keep that hat. (laughs) You don't want it stolen. You don't want anybody to grab your hat and run with it and throw it into an elevator and abscond with it. Especially
0: Thank not you. if you're a hugely talented and influential artist. Exactly. <laughs> you but deserve you know, Don't that. steal people's us. hats. Put that on his tombstone. Yeah, that's our public service announcement this episode. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> you. But uh, But I'm curious for you, do you have a favorite work from like Todd McFarlane, for example? Like, is he someone whose work appeals to you in any way? Are you more on the gym side?
2: Uh, I think he's a brilliant artist. I loved his run on uh, Amazing Spider-Man with uh, David Michelinie. I thought that was absolutely great. I loved his work on The Hulk with Peter David. I thought that was great as well. You know, I'm sorry he had some fights with the people he worked with. But, you know, years after the fact, I got to interview him when I worked for uh, an Xbox-themed magazine. Huh. And I guess he was doing some character designs for for um, Soul Calibur. And I, I offered him a signed copy of Xbox Nation number one. And I said, you know, you can have it for $10,000. But, uh, you know, he just laughed and he said, uh, oh, you guys, you're crazy. You know, that kind of thing. But yeah, um, I had no problems with those guys. And I love Jim Lee's artwork too, um, to answer your question. I think Jim Lee is a brilliant artist and creator.
0: Well, here's the thing, Greg, you may not know this, but since the beginning of the podcast, we have been keeping track of the mention of Jim or Todd in every issue. So we have a running tally here and we got to catch up with it. So in this issue, Jim Lee's still beating Todd. He recently overtook him in the count. He gets six mentions. Todd comes in with just four, which brings our running total to Jim Lee, 414 mentions, Todd McFarland 407 so much competition those guys but michael we had some laughs but hopefully greg and his cohorts put something together as they were passing a clipboard around the office that is going to make us bust a gut so let's get into perox top 10
1: This is the top 10 ways Paramount is messing with Star Trek to cash in on the Star Wars craze. Number 10, Obi-Wan Picard. Now that's a name I haven't heard for a
0: long time. (laughs) Number 9, Spock is seduced by the dark side of the Katra and starts dressing it all in black and throwing... Plameek soup against the wall with the power of his mind. I think Doug Goldstein wrote this because I don't know. That's too deep. <laughs> I'm like, I get none of this. <laughs> All right, Greg,
2: give us number eight. In a newly discovered episode, we learned that Kirk's mentor was a three foot tall green Muppet that sounds curiously like Fozzie Bear. <laughs> number seven, to defeat the evil Klingon
1: Empire in one last heated battle, the Federation gains a surprise ally in an army of tribbles armed with spears and
0: rocks. Oh, those cute little guys. Number six, Tuvok starts hawking Colt 45 beer. <laughs> what? Billy Dee Williams and Star Wars, Tuvok, Star Trek. Oh, they, I yeah. gotcha. Data keeps losing his
2: arms and legs in hilariously violent ways. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be on board for
1: that. Number four, Paramount re edits Star Trek 3 so that when the bird of prey decloaks, it fires first, misses completely, and then gets shot.
0: The bird of prey shot first. All right. Number three, the board capture the Voyager crew and stick Chicote in a steel bikini. <laughs> Poor Chakotay.
2: ILM digitizes Ricardo Montalban's manly chest from Space Seed onto the older Khan's fake rubber chest in Star Trek
0: 2. <laughs> Although reportedly Ricardo Montalban says that was just his chest, very oiled up. I believe it. (laughs) And the number
1: one top 10 ways Paramount is messing with Star Trek to cash in on the Star Wars craze. Data now has to stick a small phallic symbol into
0: wall sockets to open doors <laughs> <laughs> oh. well greg we want to thank you so much for joining us here this has been a lot of fun but before we go is there anything we didn't cover in the magazine or as you were flipping through or just some uh, memories that came to mind from your wizard days that you thought you wanted to share with the audience here
2: oh man that was my first issue a bunch of guys made me feel at home we had a great office at the time uh, we could look out the window and, and see, you know, the world at large. I thought that was great. And, uh, you know, I made a, made a bunch of good friends there,
0: you know, and thank you for having me. This is really fun. Yeah, it's been fantastic, honestly. Yeah, just the the little insights that you have brought, and I want to point out again for those of you who are not on our Patreon yet, we release a video version of this conversation just to our Patreon. And Greg had a very visual presentation that he gave to oh, us. Oh dear! <laughs> no, no, it just involved you know a plastic figurine of Fairchild from what Gen did thirteen. I? Oh, all there is. Yeah, that's no, it. that's yeah, but yeah, so definitely something to check out. But you know, if we say that magic word patreon then we gotta shout out our patrons the ones who are making it all possible so first up the newest guy on the block the Meltface killer better watch out but hey there's also brian acosta joe marcello steve king mark quill our buddy gabe denim jedi mitchell hall lee markowitz steven Forshaw, Mickey and Jason over at the Retro Network, and Mark McDonald. You guys are allowing us to have some extra fun and bring it your way, so thanks so much for subscribing. But Greg, if people want to interact with your work in the game sphere these days, what what should they pick up? Oh, gee, well, the last game I worked on was Marvel's VR
2: Iron Man, a very fun game, and it's out on uh, Oculus Quest now i guess which is the new vr thing the kids love so very much Um, (laughs) and if you want to uh send me a note it's uh or the land of the g on twitter and or the land of the g orlando on instagram and please you should donate to jim mclaughlin's charity heroesinitiative.org they help out comic book creators in need I think it's a very good charity and they have a lot of great auctions where you can buy comic books and comic book art and all that kind of stuff. Um, And
0: thank you again. Yeah, our pleasure. If you want more details on uh, Greg's experiences, you can always go back and check out his episode of The Wizard Files. That is at wizardscomics.com where you can actually find over 200 episodes now. Everything is there. We have our main episodes. We have mini episodes. We have bonus content and our interviews, especially with the Wizard staff. Lots of details there. We're hoping to schedule a few more for this year also. You
1: can find us on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics, at TikTok, and Facebook also at Wizards comics. Also, you know, we've talked about it on our YouTube channel, which is uh, Wizards Podcast. We just hit 50,000 downloads of people listening to the two of us talk about Wizard magazine, which is insane and crazy. It's super exciting. You can also well, well deserved. You know, thank, you, thank you. appreciate it. It's you know, it's.
0: It's just a wild ride so far. we can't believe it. Well, I do want to point out that specifically, Michael is the one handling our Facebook group. So if you feel like ah, I hear too much from Adam, if you want Michael's perspective on things, go join the Facebook group, and you'll also you don't want my perspective. <laughs> but a lot of people, a lot of friends of the podcast who've been on many times, if you enjoyed a lot of our guests, they're over there on the Facebook group as well. They're really enjoying the opportunity to interact. So get a conversation if you like to from going. a
1: crumudgeon like me. <laughs>
0: But again, we just want to thank you all so much for enjoying this episode with us and many more to come. But until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded.